to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. This is the second part of our post-opening diaries. The first one dealt with the operations of the front of the house side. If you haven't listened to that one already, please go ahead and do so. This episode, we'll be speaking to the people who run the kitchen, exec chef Jude Parasickles and chef de cuisine Mark Johnson. Again, to reiterate, while we have these titles, it's not really like exact. We try to put titles secondary and put doing whatever is necessary to make the restaurant better first and foremost. But if you're not familiar with the hierarchy of kitchens, it's a little bit similar like a professional sports team, at least like a football team. It all starts with like the general manager and owner. And then below that, you have the head coach. And below the head coach, you have offensive and defensive coordinators. And then you have the specialty coaches, right? The offensive line, the position coaches, uh, defensive line, linebackers, stuff like that. This is all based on the old Escoffier, this uh, French system that has been around for many, many years, which was based off the military system. So a lot of these titles are still French, and I think that's rapidly changing. The whole system of the brigade, which is the traditional French culinary team, is changing slowly but surely, and one of which is the meanings of the positions. And each restaurant can mean different things. You can have a chef that doesn't have a chef de cuisine. You can have a chef that is not really a chef, but more of a dash chef. You might see that in a hotel or a big casino operation. So the best way I can give some analogy, and I I hate this because I'm giving another analogy to something you may not understand to begin with or care about is sports, or I guess you could probably say any corporation. Like if you're the head coach or CEO, just because you have that title means that like, that's it. It's just a title. It doesn't really describe all the different things you might be responsible for or your interests in. And that's the thing. For every restaurant, you might have titles, but their scope of responsibility is going to be uniquely different to that specific restaurant or company they work for. So it's a lot of explaining, <laughs> but, but just realize that whatever we're talking about today is only meaningful to this restaurant, and that's constantly changing. We recorded this a couple months ago. We're trying to re-describe and reconfigure what the roles are within this restaurant. So, you know, I want Jude at Major Domo to not run the pass anymore. Pass is where all the tickets come in, oftentimes the dupes, the tickets for the orders that the customers are putting in. And it's also where you sort of do air traffic control to expedite. It's its own unique skill set. The New York Times, Tejul Rail, who now is with the New York Times in LA, wrote a great article about expediting this past year. So I recommend that you go check it out. But in a lot of kitchens that are smaller now, I would say under sort of 60, 70 seats, you often see the exec chef also expedite because of labor costs. But it's a tough role. Not everyone's good at it. And Jude is very good at it. And I've been trying to get him to not expedite and to do more of the things that, again, I have a hard time explaining, but it's essentially like, I don't want him to call the plays anymore. Also, I don't want him to just be Jason Garrett and just clapping either. I want him to spend more time developing culture, team, and directing flow within the organization. Mark Johnson can easily be the executive chef anywhere, and I've known him for years. Ever since, I think, 1999 or 2000, we both moved to New York and started cooking around the same time. He's from the West Coast, north of San Francisco, Half Moon Bay Area, and a lot of mutual friends. We've known each other and been close for a long time, and he's one of the the great, great cooks, chefs out there. Very storied career. And the thing with Mark is 
he could easily be the exec chef somewhere else. And I don't forget that. And what we're doing right now with Mark is as chef de cuisine, that's literally like the second title, second highest position, I guess, in a kitchen. My preferred take would be just to have chef and no, no other bullshit, right? Co-chefs more or less, right? And technically, I guess you could sobby say that it's like being a co-chef, but Mark's more in charge of the techniques that we're using, the recipe development, and those are probably his one and two priorities and just backing up Jude and Jude taking more of this sort of higher end managerial approach. It's like micro and macro. That's the way I look at it. Jude's taking the macro, Mark's doing the micro, and it's almost easier to look at their positions that way. Listen, I could probably do a fucking hundred page 10 hour podcast just on the nuances of titles and the names and how different restaurants could flip positions or put more emphasis somewhere here or there. And I'm realizing that I'm never going to get there. So if what I just explained to you was total mumbo jumbo nonsense, I apologize. I guess what I'm trying to say is this, just because we give titles and positions a certain way at our restaurants, don't assume that it works for anyone else. So anyway, We'll first be talking to our exec chef, Jude Parasickles. And again, we take these interviews in the main dining room at Major Domo back in September. So it sounds wonky. It's because we're in a damn restaurant. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jude Parasickles of Major Domo. We have Jude Parasickles. Uh, you are the executive chef of Major Domo. You're one of the very first cooks we hired at Sambar back in yeah. 2006. Your experience was, I remember all this shit. <laughs> University of Wisconsin. Yeah. From LA. And you had worked briefly at Applewood yeah, as an intern there. with David the chef there. Yeah, David Shea. Shit, I can't believe I recall all that. And you came in from the FCI because you were looking for something new. And I just remember how fucking insane that year of 2006 was because that was when we were still doing burritos by yeah. day. And then we had just shifted from 12 a.m. to 4 a.m., a different restaurant, which became Sambar. Yeah, I think my first week there was the, the week that you we started rolling out that kind of late night menu. And uh, yeah, you know, from there, it just blew up. You know, we got the Bruni review, I think maybe two or three months after that. And then it was just... Gangbusters after that. Man, that's going back. And I can't believe you were there to see. We had the, the condiment station that turned into a table. Yeah. We had the hotline that turned into like with a Coca-Cola refrigerator that was open. It was yeah. such a yeah, weird the, concept. It was, yeah. And it's fun to think nostalgically about that, but it was fucking hard. It was, it was. It was, uh, there was just a lot of kind of moving parts and just having that sort of multiple concepts in the same space at different times of the day and kind of, you know, figuring out how those work together and or didn't work together and, and, and making it all happen. And that was, at, I think, one of the most manic states I've ever been in, in terms of craziness. I don't really recall anything. I think my ability to be a manager was the worst it's ever been in terms of my yelling, the shit that I would like the mise en place list that I would like force people to do, like it was so insane. And I remember Tin pulling me aside, be like, bro, we had a pact that if you ever act like an asshole, like we worked at like Cafe Balloon, like I would let you know. And that was like, I was like, oh, dude, I'm, I've turned into the fucking very thing I worked so hard not to fucking be. Even though that in my mind, I knew, I, I don't know. It was just like, 
it was a weird time, I think, in 2006. Like, wasn't it different in how everything worked back then in terms of managing? Yeah, I mean, like, back then it was very... Um, Not just our restaurant, like everything. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the restaurant culture has, in general has changed a lot since then. I think certainly, obviously, Momofuku has changed and grown a lot since then. One of the good and bad things about that time that I remember is like how many talented like chefs we had working there. And Tin Ho, Peter Serpico, Tim Maslow, Kino, of course, which was great for... I think Tosi. Yeah, Tosi. It was great for myself and all the other cooks to be exposed to those people. You know, but the sort of flip side and challenging part of that was that there were just literally so many cooks and chefs in the kitchen that like we were all getting torn in so many directions in a lot of ways and getting, it was you know, pan- managed by so many people. <laughs> and pandemonium every day, right? Yeah. It was so hard to recreate the spastic nature of that year. I can't even think about anything. All I know is how angry I was all day, every day, because every day felt like it was going to end. Yeah. Because it was. <laughs> I was very clear about our bank statements, about where we're at, and I was very clear about the money that we needed to do and so on and so forth. And I, I thought that was the only way we could get everyone to understand, like, if we don't do this, everything we lose everything. And that kind of pressure, I think, turned Sambar into something so fucking weird. Yeah. And you were always incredibly dependable. We turned you into, we made you a sous chef offer at Noodle Bar and you were there and you got married and uh, you're like, you know what? We don't want to, we don't want to raise our kids in New York. Yeah. We just sort of outgrew New York a little bit. It was time to. You were ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I guess we always knew we wouldn't be in New York forever, but yeah, once started having a family and all that kind of stuff, it was like, okay, we can, it's funny. We can I, have a lot more back I, out I here. remember I was probably what? 31 at the time. 30, 30, I don't remember. And I remember you telling me this and I had no fucking idea. <laughs> I could not comprehend what the fuck you were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> now so you understand though, right? Now you're out in LA, it's all, it's all and good And now I'm here, like, right? man, if I could go back in time, I'd just beat the shit out of myself. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, how could you fucking leave to start a family? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I just was like, so fucking naive. I had no idea what the fuck and I was like, oh, it made all the sense of the world. And I couldn't be happy for all your success here. You wound up working really close with Roy Choi. And I knew deep down, and I t- remember telling you before you left, I was like, we're going to be there one day. I'm going to fucking give you a call. Yeah, I remember. I remember those calls. <laughs> I remember those conversations. And, I, and I, I, I held you to it. Yeah, we kept in touch after all these years. And um, when we signed that lease, I called you that day. And it was on. I remember, yeah. It was on. And by then you had left and you were at um, Cannibal. And we didn't really have anything planned too much, right? Like, I knew that, like, Mark was out here and we wanted to get that together. And we were looking for our our GM partner. And we found Christine pretty soon after. And we started to build that nucleus. And you have been a chef on an executive level for many years. Like, you've been doing this a long fucking time without going into all the things that you like sort of learned along the way, how different was it, was it to come back to Momofuku? Like Can, different in terms of how it was both working for it before. Or yeah. just- and, and also how different was it in terms of culturally, yeah. right? Because the culture that you inherited or you thought you knew in 2006 and 2008 is completely fucking different. I think now. Yeah. 
So both of those things. I mean, this was certainly like the biggest and most most ambitious project I had been a part of just in terms of, you know, the scale of the restaurant itself and the profile that um, and the expectations that came along, you know, with this project. So that was certainly something that was, you know, new and, and different to me. And, you know, one of the biggest like kind of differences, I think, between when I was with the company before and now is this sort of, you know, the incredible sort of infrastructure and like support that we have behind us and behind each new project with all the different chefs and operations people to sort of, you know, help us along the way with with everything. What has kind of stayed the same, and I'm glad that it has stayed the same, is the the culture of just really pushing ourselves every day and really trying to, you know, innovate and create daily and break a lot of the molds in the industry um, and try to you know, do something that's different from, from what everyone else is doing. And that, that, that has remained true throughout, which is <laughs> And I, I can only apologize profusely for some of that too, right? Because working here is not easy because I feel like we're always trying to challenge a status quo or, or level of comfort. And we'll talk about that in a second, but you're one of the few people, maybe the only people I can talk to that like, you are the only person that saw Momofuku at the point of, complete failure and rawness in a way that it was just so hard to describe what the fuck happened that yeah. year. Um, <laughs> so fucking insane. It's like we survived a plane crash. Yeah. Right. And we're like, Oh fuck, we didn't get injured. Uh, <laughs> and to the point where now it's like a band of misfits turned into like a real fucking company along yeah. the way. We're sort of like the outsiders who, who made it in and are now running shit. So you know? weird. Right. <laughs> And then when I talk to you, whenever I talk to you, I think about how fucking insane that must be for you to see like, what the fuck? How did this happen? Yeah, it's really crazy to have seen it back then and to now return to it after being away for so long. And I mean, I consider myself to be very fortunate to be, you know, have been a part of that and to be a part of it again and and and, and witness that that growth and that change. And yeah, there was nothing, <laughs> there's nothing quite like it. And nor will I think there will ever... <laughs> Be again, so um, you know. I think it was. I'm, I'm very lucky and to be have been a part of that unique situation and culture and and time because yeah, it was it was crazy. And uh, one of the reasons why I wanted you is you're so steady, you're so dependable. It's very hard to get you overly excited like myself or overly down like myself. It was like a very steady, steady influence, and I think that's super important for a head chef and. You're a Los Angelino. You know this fucking town inside and out. And I was like, man, like, we would not be successful without you being here. You know what I mean? Like, I think we would have fucking made some horrible fucking decisions had we not just assumed that, like, oh, like, I can't remember countless ideas where, like, yeah, let's do this. And you're like, no. <laughs> That's just not how it works, man. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a unique, um, you know, market. I think a lot of, as LA kind of blows up, in the culinary scene. And I mean, it's always been a great place to eat, as you know. I mean, it's only just now recently getting, I think, the recognition and attention that that is deserved for many years. Um, but it can be difficult for outsiders to come in and sort of have assumptions or presumptions about the food here, about the people here, about the way people like to eat. And it's, you know, it can be difficult to kind of translate and be successful here in this market. When you came over and we were game planning at the line, I don't remember most of, I don't remember, I know we had a ton of conversations. 
was there a pattern to anything that the fuck we were talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, there were certain things in the menu that we knew we were absolutely going to do or that we wanted to do. You know, nothing was concrete or really ever like solidified there. I mean, it was, we kind of pulled it all together once we got into this space. But I think all those discussions and all that work that we did do then, you know, made it possible for it to all kind of come together finally once we were here. But we were certainly like all over the place at many times. I mean, I remember being very frustrated or just sort of like trying to wrap my head around like all the different things that we were talking about or things that we were cooking or things that we were thinking about doing and trying to kind of guide it or, or sort of like keep it organized. But it was certainly um, looking back on it now, I'm, I'm glad that it was kind of just like a free for all of ideas and discussions and just trying shit because we were able to kind of pull. Do you remember that one dish you made that. at the line? And I think we had like the, like our first serious conversation that we had and had in like a decade. I think it was like a cauliflower dish. Remember oh that? yeah. We were kind of like a, a side, like a yeah. one of the market dishes. Yeah. Like cauliflower, I think. And I was like, it's delicious, Jude. I, I know it's delicious, but like, I don't know how to fucking tell you this, but this is like the furthest thing that I think we're trying to do. And I wish I could have articulated better. It was just, I think now you can see that it was yeah. like not. It took me and I know Mark, he and I have talked about it as well. It took us a long time to really wrap our head around what <laughs> you wanted to do and what we were trying to do because we were really having to kind of break the mold of a lot of the ways that we have cooked in the past or learned how to cook in the past or, you know, have done at other restaurants that we've, we've worked at. And yeah, it took a long time to really kind of like trip the wire to be like, oh, okay. I remember it was sort of like, again, once we were in the space and started like putting stuff on the plate and like getting some finished product out there, then it kind of like clicked like, okay, this is what we're trying to do. This is who we are. This is what we're trying to say. But it was very, very difficult to, I don't know, I guess make that jump from like, yeah, it's not good enough this that it's delicious. And it right? wasn't it necessarily bad like, habits. And I, I'm sorry, I, I, at that time, I was so bad at articulating this. And it wasn't saying that like what we've done or what you've done in the past is bad. It's like, how do we try to endeavor to do something with a, a fresh set of eyes? You know what I mean? Right. Even though it's not new, it breaks the mold at how we have done it in the past. Right. And finding those seams in how different food over, you know, overlaps from different cultures and different cuisines and different techniques and like finding those commonalities and finding, you know, a different way to do something that's already been done or that's familiar. And because your experience outside of Momofuku and within Momofuku, you've seen all the good that we can do within Momofuku and the bad that we need to get better at. But you've experienced all kinds of other kitchens over the past decade plus. And that's the thing is I wanted to make sure that you were totally aware of everything you've done and how do we fucking make sure that we do it differently? And I think it was really a hard challenge for all of us to collectively say, how would a normal restaurant group make this decision or chef make this decision? Collectively, we could sort of figure out the, the path of least resistance. And then I think it was really hard to get everyone's sensibilities, but like, we have to make it more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. like not doesn't it's not the Los Angeles way. Right. Yeah, no, it wasn't. I mean, it was yeah, it was really hard to kind of wrap our head around that. I mean, I remember like all those months we were at the line, my wife would ask me like, "So, how's it going? How's the menu coming along?" and I'd be like, "I don't know what we're doing." Like, <laughs> you know, and like I always had faith and I was like I knew we'd we'd figure it out, but it was so hard to like 
yeah, articulate to someone else or even just articulate it to myself until we finally started kind of understanding. And like, I'm really glad that we had that time all together at the line. Because even if we didn't necessarily work out that much there in terms of like what ended up the restaurant actually being, I think having that time together as a team enabled us to figure it out in the end. Because all those different things we went through doing those dinners and, you know, the meals we had out together and all the discussions we had, it all kind of like finally pushed us, I think, past the tipping point where like we, we all kind of like got it, you know, and now here we are. And one of the things I learned pretty quickly, though, was over the years, you became a fucking expert meat cook. Meat cookery was like off the charts. And I was like, oh, do you like to cook some meat? Yes. I was like, <laughs> OK, you know what we're going to have? Like, we didn't have this plan, but we were trying to create to the strengths of everyone around. I was like, oh, man, over 10 years, your ability to cook, fabricate meat, understand temp, croissant, all that stuff was at like a world-class level. I was like, oh, we're just going to fucking definitely have more meat than we had anticipated before. Yeah. And once we had that, it was also reverse engineering what it meant to be a chef. And I think that was my challenge to you and vice versa. Because like this role between us had to like, I don't even think we've ever spoken about this, quite frankly. What is your role as exec chef of Major Domo? Because this is something we never, we have titles, but it's also like, Right. We have titles, but everyone kind of like does everything. Everyone kind of does everything. So, wow. I mean, that's, that's actually a question I've been thinking about a lot lately <laughs> and trying to like, you know, get a better handle on to see how I can be a better, a better chef and a better manager of the other chefs and the cooks and everything. I would say my job is to set everybody up for success and give them like the tools and abilities and operations to like, be able to do what they do best, whether that be from a dishwasher all the way up to the, the top and keep everyone here engaged, challenged and create a culture of, you know, high standards, but also a place that's fun to work where people feel like they are cared for and want to care for their coworkers. Um, and of course, ensure that, you know, we're making the best, best food we possibly can. If all those things kind of can be taken care of and addressed, like, I feel like we'll have a good restaurant for three years to come. And I'd add, I think the mantra we had for at least the culinary management, it's not about fucking cooking. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I did more cooking than I do, but really it's, it's not about that. <laughs> like that's so hard to even talk about and wrap my head around. But I remember like, dude, it's not about fucking food anymore. Like it's the last thing that should be on your mind. Yeah. Cause if we don't have the team that wants to be here, that executes it, that wants to, make the hard decisions, do things with integrity. Who gives a fuck if we have the most brilliant recipe in the world, the most delicious dish? They don't give a fuck about it. Right. And, and also, we can't, we can't make every dish. We can't really make any dishes. Like, we have to make sure that our cooks and everybody else knows, you know, how to do what we want them to do because we can't be here to, all the time to do every plate. And we had a, a moment a couple of days ago, right at the pass... And it was Mark, and I think Christine came down, and we had a chat. I was frustrated because it dawned on me, it's so hard to stop what you're doing. We spoke about going sixth day, seventh day, menu development, so on and so forth. And it dawned on me that you were so dedicated to servicing the needs of everyone else that you, <laughs> you we put so far down on the priority list is like the food. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, and I was like, I was like, fuck Dave, I'm such a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that's something that I, I really, you know, that 
I want to work on that I need to work on because I'm, I'm the kind of person who I like things to be running well and smoothly and make sure that everything is in place and, and everyone's doing what they got to do and has what they need um, before I can really kind of think and work creatively. And I need to, you know, make more time for that and give more attention to that and sort of. But it's hard, man. And, and that's is, the yeah. thing that I feel like I've gotten so much better at reserving like stupid things that I want to say or do because I realized first and foremost, you're a dad of two kids, right? And that takes a lot of your fucking time. Yeah. Secondly, you're dedicated to managing, keeping everyone on track, scheduling dishwasher. It's a, every day it's a fucking litany of shitty fucking things to go through. Yeah. There's always, you always get pulled <laughs> down in the, in the minutia of the day to day. Before you, know? you even get to service. Right. Right. And then you end service, you're fucking exhausted. And then you got to be a dad again. And, I live in a world of analogies, particularly sports analogies. And if whatever we're talking about, Jude and I are talking about, doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever. And you're like, oh, this is so fucking boring. <laughs> the best way I can make a comparison is I was having fears, genuine fears that we were exactly playing the game like the Jacksonville Jaguars versus the New England Patriots of last year's AFC championship game uh -huh. where they were beating the shit out of the Pats and they had like a game strip all the way to like, the fourth quarter and they executed flawlessly and they have like a three touchdown lead. And then it was like, what, what the fuck do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> and we've been so diligent along the way that mm -hmm. you forget that. What do you do after a certain point? And I think that was the realization that we all sort of had. I was like, yeah. we got to fucking throw out the fucking playbook again and create something from scratch. And I think that prospect when we were talking, I think your reaction was the same as my reaction. Like, when we saw the the giant mountain of work that was ahead with Christine, we're like, fuck. Right. Because <laughs> it, yeah, it is daunting and, you know, we're all tired and we're all, but yeah, we got to play to win, not to not lose, you know? And, so that was it, right? Like you have a giant responsibility right now and I want to help out any which way possible, but you have great command of the kitchen. You're fucking killing it. We're at a point now where we don't even know what the, what the next future is. I can't even, no one fucking knows. We've never been in this position before. Yeah. And uh, all I know is what's around the corner is we can't assume that it's going to be good. Right. And I just want to make sure that it's not too much pessimism and fucking paranoia, but I think we can be better. We have, you've helped assemble a ridiculous team here. We just got to figure out how to like be prepared for whatever is down the fucking road. Yeah. And I think that that's as like, daunting as it may feel we're also really excited to kind of bring in some new changes bring in some new dishes figure out kind of like how we're going to set major domo up for a longer term success like not only beyond this opening year but for years and years to come and really like you know start thinking about and talking about like what that really could mean and we don't know yet we're gonna we gotta figure it out cool thank you jude thank you all right, thanks again to Jude Parasickles. Next, we're going to bring in Mark Johnson, Chef de Cuisine at Major Domo. But first, a word from our sponsors. 
Today's Day Change show is brought to you by Lisa. A quality night's sleep helps you recover from distractions faster, prevent burnout, and make better decisions, improve your memory, and overall make fewer mistakes. It's not marketing, it's science. To design a better mattress to give you a quality night's sleep, Lisa leveraged 30 plus years of experience and hundreds of hours of scientific testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's rest for everybody. Through their 110 program, they donate mattresses for every 10 they sell. That's more than 31,000 mattresses in county. Lisa strives to leave the world better than they found it, but that doesn't stop with mattress donations. Together with the Arbor Day Foundation, Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell. I'm sleeping on a Lisa mattress right now. People think that I'm less grumpy, and I think it's because I'm getting a better night's rest. Give yourself the gift of a better night's rest this holiday. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash Chang and use promo code C-H-A-N-G at checkout. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash Chang, promo code Chang. Today's Dave Chang show is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. And Hotel Tonight has partnered with these awesome hotels to help them sell those unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Seriously, if you love scoring amazing hotel deals, you gotta try Hotel Tonight. Forget scrolling through never-ending lists. Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels they think you'll love. And they even give you short profiles of each hotel complete with all the info you'll need and pictures of what the rooms really look like. Plus, even though their name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last minute bookings. You can also book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool and more. When I go visit my parents for the holidays, I'm definitely not gonna stay at their house. I'm gonna use Hotel Tonight. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. Today's Day Chang Show is also brought to you by Skagen. Cultural identity plays a big part of Skagen's Danish-inspired watches and jewelry. Skagen is named after a Danish coastal town and is inspired by the people who live there. The Danish lifestyle focuses on what's meaningful, being part of community, living purposefully, but also making time for good food, good music, and good company. No wonder Denmark is known as the happiest place on earth. Skagen connects the dots between culture and design with watches and jewelry that reflect the less is more concept. Skagen offers men's and women's watches, jewelry, and even smart watches in a variety of styles. They create styles driven by their guiding principle, good design for better living. Skagen products look right any time of day, anywhere in the world, now or 10 years from now. Because simplicity isn't just beautiful, it's versatile. Skagen stays true to their heritage, and that makes every design something special. I have a Skagen digital watch. It's great. I use it all the time. Visit skagen.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. That's skagen.com, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. All right. Again, I feel so weird talking about my team this way, but I'm so proud of them as well. And you know, you try to put people as to where they're best going to play, right? And I guess now that I'm just thinking about, and I've talked about all these roles, it's almost like a soccer team, right? Like not everyone plays a striker the same way. Not everyone plays a 10 the same way or a winger so on and so forth. It really depends individually and more than one player can score. So I'm really apprehensive of explaining very in detail of what everyone's doing, but when I get to someone like Mark, who's 
technically the CDC. I don't really think that's a, an exact fit either, but Mark and I are close friends. I know his wife and his family really well. He cooked at Blue Hill, Chez Panisse, and he spent a lot of time in Asia and he came back and he's a real cook's cook. And I'm trying to get Mark to not just play offense. He can do defense. He can do it all. And I'm so lucky to have Mark because he could work anywhere. I could talk forever. I'm just going to shut up. Here's Mark Johnson, CDC of Major Domo. I am with Mark Johnson, chef to cuisine. Again, titles are sort of funny here, but um, I've known him for almost, let's say 20 years. (laughs) That's fucking weird. (laughs) That's really weird. Um, I have a good story to talk about Mark because he's one of my close friends. So it's different. Like I took him out of retirement he was, this is true. He was retired for about three or four years. He was hung up his chef whites. And we have seen each other a lot, hung out each other a lot. We we're close friends with his wife and the circle of friends when he lived in New York for many years. He used to work at Blue Hill Stone Barns. He was at Chez Panisse before that, was opening his name Stone Barns, left to work in Shanghai at a variety of really prestigious restaurants, opened up his own restaurant in Shanghai. And uh, when he came back to New York, uh, East Coast, right, mm-hmm. came back to Boston, one of my old uh, cook chefs, Tim Mazzo, had a restaurant called Striptease. And we were teaching that class at Harvard, and I was going up there on the regular. <laughs> and everyone at the time was like, oh, you got to go to this restaurant, Striptease. I was like, yeah, I, I know Mazzo. <laughs> we'll check it out. And then I walk in, and, and like Mazzo is catching up, and he's telling me all these things, and he's like, Dude, you'll never guess. I got this fucking guy. He's amazing. He's like the best cook I've ever fucking seen. And like, oh man, like this is amazing. My life is so much better because sometimes you get these like angels that fall out of heaven. <laughs> I look in the kitchen. He's like, I was like, dude, I want to meet this fucking guy. He came from China. I'm like, he, he sounds like LeBron James of cooking. I was like, I got to meet this fucking guy. I look in the kitchen and I'm like, that fucking guy? <laughs> Mark Johnson? He's like, you know each other? Like, <laughs> forever. <laughs> known each other forever. And he was like, he didn't understand it. And I was like, this is a well, reason why I want to tell this story is a testament to so much of who you are as a person. One of the most skilled, one of the most accomplished cook chefs out there came back. And one of the reasons why you have turned down chef gig after chef gig after chef gig is why. Because I want to work with the best. But you also hate managing. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) After being in China for six years and managing Chinese chefs, I just wanted to cook. So I ended up in a diner in Watertown, not even in Boston. And it was so fucking funny to me. It felt like some movie Gene Hackman would be in or something (laughs) like that. I was like, oh my fucking God. And I explained to Timmy, I was like, He's been cooking longer than you have, and he has a tremendous experience. And I was like, you're really lucky. And (laughs) I was like, Mark, what the fuck? Why are you cooking? And then I forgot how much you hate managing (laughs) and how much you just love the craft of cooking. And you just want to cook. Yeah. And what people don't realize, when I say people, people that may not be in the industry, when you become a sous chef or a chef, you really don't cook that much anymore. For sure. And to make your reach really felt, you have to do more management than the cooking. And 
I love to just get lost in the craft of cooking. And, you know, I tell the guys here all the time, I'm like, I forgot to do that because I just got so engulfed in what I was doing and thinking about what I was doing that I just like, I say, I get blinded by the cooking. And it's such a pure love. And that's the thing. It's like, we talk about food all the time and I'm so happy that you're here and I admire everything you're done. And we can talk shop. We can talk a lot about a lot of different things. And one of the things that's always been the, the case when I talk to you or Stephanie, your wife, was I give you a lot of shit because you refuse to take that other step. Not because you can't. Yep. I don't know how many years. That's been a running joke. Oh, for a long time. Mark, what the fuck? <laughs> but it's funny. Like, I always tell people why I got into cooking is, you know, at post-college, I was thinking about cooking. And I never, my goal was never to be a great chef, never to own a restaurant, never to do anything. I just wanted to cook the best food. That's it. But that's like real cook. And you got into cooking again before it was cool. And you're, you're a cow bear, proud cow bear. <laughs> <laughs> He's got an Aaron Rodgers tattoo on his lower left back. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but the reality is it's, you're the kind of cook that I learned from, right? The kind of cook that got into this because of the, the purity of it, the honesty of it all. And it's a hard day's work and you can get better at it. And it's amazing through experience and, and applying yourself, the things that you can do with food, right? And you can feel really good about it. And I understood that about you. And that's why I, I actually admire you so much. But I was also like, dude, <laughs> you're really fucking good at cooking. How do I push you out of your comfort zone to do something you don't want to do, which is teaching other people to be better fucking cooks? Yeah. I would say a lot of that style comes from Juan Cuevas at Blue Hill and he wasn't the type of guy that was going to be like, beat you down or get into it. But you were naturally drawn to him because what he was cooking was so amazing and you wanted to learn that. And I guess that's kind of the way I go is that I want to do amazing things that cooks are interested in and are naturally inquisitive and they want to learn what I'm doing. Mark Johnson just name dropped a chef. And this is something I feel like we've done quite a bit more in our podcast is explain some of these names. I think culinary history is incredibly important to me, particularly the lineage. Juan Cuevas is a chef that came from, was it Puerto Rico? Yep. And he spent a lot of time with Christian Deluvier at Les Panas, mm -hmm. which was one of the most iconic kitchens, both under Deluvier, who came after Greg Kuntz. Yeah. Um, and you may not hear Les Panas at all anymore, but if you grew up in New York in the 90s or cooked for some of the chefs and many chefs came out of the Les Panas kitchen under both eras of Les Panas, under Deluvier and Kuntz, it was uh, the like the gilded era of… It was insane. Yeah, every fucking it amazing person. And Juan worked there and he also spent time for Alain Ducasse. Alain Ducasse. And, and, uh, Ducasse at the Essex House. Yeah. Spent time in San Francisco the dining room at the Ritz-Carlton under one of uh, Ducasse's um, left-hand guy. What's his name? No, he worked for Laurent Gras at the fifth floor. No, no, no. Oh. He worked at the dining, uh, oh. the dining room at the Ritz uh, with… Um, oh, whatever. We're, we're geeking out on something that most people don't know too much about. But Juan is someone that is an important teacher because a lot of people that I know work for him. And I have mad respect for him and his career. And he was a massive mentor to you, right? Yeah. That kitchen was amazing. Really, really just working in small kitchens like that and having a teacher like that. I, I trailed at so many restaurants in New York trying to decide where I was going to go. 
And after Stone Barnes, I decided to go back to Blue Hill, basically because of the teaching ability of Juan and how hands-on he was in far, as far as teaching. I've always structured where I was going to go next based upon the teaching potential of who was in charge there. And Mark used to work with a lot of my friends at Stone Barnes. And again, at some a certain point in New York, everyone knew everyone. Mm-hmm. And randomly on a completely different night, I met his wife when I decided to get incredibly drunk by myself, which I used to do quite a bit late night after service just to- Kanji like, Village Bar. Yeah, I, that, Kanji Village was my place where I would be like, if it was a really fucking hard service, <laughs> I would go to the back bar, Kanji Village- <laughs> order soy sauce chow mein and get fucking obliterated. <laughs> and what were you drinking those nights? I don't even remember, but it was anything because no one would bother me and I would get blind drunk and then go to bed. That was my plan. And then this was like, I don't even remember how. And then someone said like, so I met your wife and her friends on a completely like random tangent anyway. Yep. And it was just coincidental that it was the two of you guys. So uh, we've known each other a long time. I no, we could talk forever about these things. And you had opened up a restaurant in Shanghai. You had a, one of the reasons I think you didn't want to manage is you got a taste of managing as a sous chef and a chef in Shanghai. Yeah. What did you hate about it? It's not that I hate it. I think about like you and I think about my wife. They're the type of people that really want to change people and like force them into something that you see them as. And what you, I, I'm not like that at all. Dude, what are you talking on. about? Come on. I'm so docile. Come on. <laughs> and, you know, I talk to my wife a lot about managing. She does a lot of management now and about how you, you kind of are shaping a personality, whereas I'm more like accepting of that person's personality and seeing how they can work for me. And I don't know, it, in a kitchen where you need to make people do something that you want them to do, it's, it's a lot of work to try to get someone to do something repetitively where it's maybe not in their nature or what they want to do. And every single day, you're a struggle trying to make the right decisions that you want them to make. And I, for the record, I, I really think Mark is one of the, of all my friends that have kids, like you are like the best fucking dad, dude. literally. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and he has two of the most adorable kids. And I think this is sort of the crossroads we reached out a, a couple months ago when I was like, Mark, you are the most amazing parent. But when you're here, essentially, you're basically a parent to these younger cooks. Yeah. You're the worst fucking dad. (laughs) I have bad cop responsibility here, man. Now that my kids have grown out of like the baby phase, which I was when I was in retirement, I was taking care of the kids. And now to be back in the kitchen and you do kind of change perspective on your cooks and your, your children. And you are trying to make them to be better people. And a lot of those decisions you're thinking about and how to guide them in the right path to make better decisions, become better cooks and better people comes back to like dealing with my three-year-old kid and my four and a half-year-old kid. But with these cooks, you're making their decisions for them. True. Right. And part of that, I think, stems from the fact that you cannot handle nor have the patience for stupidity in a kitchen. True. (laughs) Which is ultimately why. Laziness, not caring. (laughs) I mean, it's the same thing with you. The most important thing is to get someone to care, right? That's it. And it's so basic. And it's not that, again, it's not that you don't want to be the chef or that responsibility. You can't handle fucking people not giving a shit. Yeah. So you would rather just eliminate it altogether. (laughs) And the reality is, is I've taken a long time in understanding this and thinking about this a lot is, and I joke that although Mark is like the all-American boy that looks the part, (laughs) he's like incredibly Asian too in sensibility. (laughs) And 
there's nothing wrong with the fact that I, if Mark had his choice, he would have a 12-seat restaurant where it's just him making fucking everything. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I could handpick a few people out of our kitchen that I'd like to be there with me. But, like, I just need people to care about everything. Like, And we're going to, and I, I'm telling you, like, one of my goals is to be able to get you that opportunity. Or not just that. It doesn't have to be small. It's just, like, where things are done in a way that is suitable to your standards. But one of the things that happened I thought was interesting to talk about was you were preventing cooks from developing any intuition because it was, you're going to do it this way and don't ask any fucking questions. <laughs> yeah. And it, you and know, it was the opposite of you mm-hmm. as real dad. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the China influence in working with Paul Perret and stuff like that is when we got to China... There was no intuition as far Paul as Paul Perret, who's uh, the award-winning chef of Ultra Violets, yeah, and Mr. and Mrs. Bund, uh, but, and he's a very, very famous chef in Shanghai. Yeah, where I went from Blue Hill, which was very much working with Juan, which is kind of intuitive cooking and very intelligent cooking, but trusting the cooks to do stuff because they really cared about it, going to China and dealing with stuff where the cooks had no intuition. So we had to spell out all the recipes to them and guide them from A to Z with no, no loose ends, no, like the recipes really had to be tight. And that's where that kind of comes from. And now it's getting back to the other side and kind of, kind of merging those two really still writing like tight recipes and stuff like that, but also like getting some intuition from the cooks so that they can learn that side too. So I, I joke to myself and I've never told you this. I, I, I always joke to myself. This is only funny to me is that you're Roy Hobbs in the natural. You're like, <laughs> You're the dude that could have done it, but didn't want to do it. And, and I'm trying to make sure that at the later stage and you're now 40s that you're going <laughs> to rediscover like, oh, no, I actually want to fucking do all this shit, which is not, not, not necessarily what you want to do. No. I mean, it's challenging. I mean, this, Major Domo is a beast of a kitchen. Like bigger, so bigger, thing, bigger so than hard. I've ever so dealt hard. with. It's so hard. There's so many different things going on so many stations with different types of food and we're always kind of changing things, which makes it very challenging. And, you know, we have a lot of great cooks here, but we also have new cooks coming in and we got to teach them and, and like kind of get them up to speed. And it's challenging to balance out those things that we have really senior level cooks that are really good and we need to trust them with that intuition. And there's other cooks that we need to hold their hand and teach them along the way. I'm going to end it on this one note and it's a story we have a crispy rice dish and Mark changed it from the version that I worked on, which was more of a, a version of rice and peas, Reese PC and this beautiful copa that he makes, which is, I think the best, so delicious. Anyway, he changed it to a shrimp and corn because mm-hmm. it's a, I think it's one of the most delicious things that we have on the menu. And I saw your process and I'm just going to see how it plays out. And I'm learning as I get older, just to like, not do the snap judgment that I want to do and just let it fucking play out mm-hmm. and see what happens. So over the course of a month, I would see like, oh, okay. Like Mark is ma- now making this from soup to not- start to finish. He is controlling the process of this. Yep. Every fucking thing on the mise en place. <laughs> and I now, it dawned on me. It was like, that was your fucking, your, your solace is your happy place because you could take something and control everything. And in my head, and I was trying to calculate throughout the day, I was like, <laughs> I'm going to write down in my head how much time it takes <laughs> to make this fucking dish. 
And throughout the day, I think I calculated like six fucking hours. Not six, three, three hours, six if you include like all the other prep. But like you personally were dedicating three oh, hours yeah. a day. And I also knew that we would have other conversations and you'd be like, man, we need more people. We're sort of short staffed. <laughs> <laughs> you're complaining about these other things. I'm like, asshole, you're spending three fucking hours a day on a dish that if we are now going into, I was like, what? you're making it way more difficult on yourself. And yeah. we had to have a real conversation about this. Oh, yeah. What were you doing? And what was the compromise? I have a hard time giving up stuff when I know that I can do it better. And this is the thing about managing, right? You need to make sure when you transfer that, you're sure that that person can make it as good as you, right? And I have a hard time giving that up because like I can look at somebody sauteing the corn or doing something which is like whatever bullshit at the end of the day, you know? But I'm like, oh, I could do that better. And so that's hard for me to do. And that's part of the managing thing that I need to work on and get better at. And It sucks. Yeah. But you got to learn to do it. Yep, for sure. But there was one thing too when we were trying to like, and this is what we do. We, we like sort of, it's like reviewing game film, right? Yeah. And we just go over it and over and over it and we break it down into every possible piece. And the one thing that I was like, could use so we could both understand the problem was in preparing the shrimp, oh, that, <laughs> you, yeah. you were making a corbouillon. <laughs> what is a corbouillon? Just a seasoned, acidic, broth to poach something in. And can you explain the process for the, the sh just the shrimp in this dish? Taking the shrimp, we were making this court bouillon, which is making a broth, blanching it in there until it was about medium rare, cooling it down in that chilled broth, cutting it into pieces. So now you understand you have two corbouillons, one to oh, cook yeah. in and another corbouillon to chill in. That was the previous day's poaching liquid. See, there was a method to it. And then it was chopped up and then it got put on the station and they would saute it to order when the, when the order came in. <laughs> and that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot of fucking work actually considering the amount of orders we sell. Oh yeah. And Listen, if we were a tasting menu or doing like 20 to 40 people a day, totally makes sense. But there's certain economies of scale when you are now making, selling, what, 40 to 50 of these yep. a day. So like there are different things that you have to not make sacrifices, but all that matters is the end goal, right? And there's certain, yep. not I want to say shortcuts, but you can take different roads to get to the end goal where it would be hard for someone to really distinguish the other tech, the, a shortcut. Exactly. I it mean, it'd be really hard for someone. You would need an incredibly gifted palate to distinguish the difference. Incredibly gifted. Right. But what makes cooking and a kind of cook like you do this is you fucking love the process. Yep. And by doing this process of making a corbouillon, you're respecting the culinary traditions, <laughs> going all the way back to Escoffier. And there's something romantic and nostalgic about that. And that's why you do it. Yep. And after this process of over the past couple of days trying to figure out what the fuck, how do we make this a little bit better? And it dawned on me, I was like, we're making Corbillon. Like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> like, really? I understand if a specific dish that requires that, but in a dish that has all these other elements that's not even focusing on the shrimp, we are now making Corbillon every day, which is sort of a pain in the ass, chilling it. It's taking store. It's so much work it, for the amount of shrimp. It truly peeling the shrimp, so on and so forth. It goes back to that being blinded by cooking, where I just get in this like very like 
focus thing where I'm like, oh yeah, of course you do that. Of course you do that. And then of course you're tapping my shoulder and you're like, you're a fucking dumbass. <laughs> I step back and I'm like, you're right. That's fucking stupid. What was the compromise? Uh, we just marinated the shrimp and then we saute it. <laughs> fucking line cooks are like, this is great. <laughs> no one knows. It's all the same. I mean, you taste the shrimp. It's, once it's sauteed and everything, deglazed with lime juice. We uh, literally cut out three hours of prep a day. Yeah. And that's like not a hyperbole. It's three, around three I hours. I come in three hours later every day <laughs> since. <laughs> and, and that's an important lesson that I feel like I've learned and you learned is cooking has so much fucking ego in it. Yeah. It's we, hard to kill it, man. And yeah, it's ego I mean, in the best possible way too, right? What you were trying to do. Because <clears> you're trying to teach everyone how to do it right. Yeah. I mean, the craft of cooking, there's something very fulfilling of doing something on your hands. And like, when you know you're like doing the best you can from A to Z, I think it like tires me out, but it also makes me sleep better at night, you know? And when you start to do those kinds of things, it's like, oh, I do something. But it also gives you a lot more time to do something else in the kitchen, which you can like expand on the menu and do other things that are worthwhile. So you have to make those, I'm not going to say a compromise. It's like a, a decision to like, use efficiencies in a way that is beneficial to the kitchen and the menu. It is your day off. You're going to take your kids to a Dodgers game. Yep. And we are working hard to get Mark's project. <laughs> we will not speak any further than that. Someday. Someday, probably soon. Yeah. It'll be fun. For sure. Thank you, man. Thank you. Okay, guys. Thank you for listening to Mark and Jude of Major Domo, giving us a little bit of a taste of the back of the house kitchen operations in the post-opening diaries. If this seems to be an incomplete idea or viewpoint or perspective of our restaurant, or if you're listening to this and you're in the industry and you're like, that's not how we fucking do it at our restaurant, good, because you're not supposed to do it like everyone else. So just understand that we're going to continue to talk about this as frequent as it can, updating Major Domo, not just Major Domo, all the restaurants to give you a better insight as to how we manage, how we scope things out, and how we build team. But uh, lastly, I just wanted to really say thank you to all of you who have supported us over the past year. We started doing the pre-opening diaries like December of 2017 and just banking them, in which we launched, uh, I think, like March of 2018. And again, just to reiterate, never had an intention of doing the podcast as we've done. And I just want to give a big shout out to Isaac Lee, Chris Chen, Chris Yang, and so many people, Ryan Healy back in Momofuku, the whole team at Momofuku. There's been a village to get this off the ground, to make this happen, the whole restaurant and major domo, and all the people that are listening, all the chefs that have participated, the great actors, the comedians, the experts, the journalists. The fact that 52 weeks have gone by and we've done like almost 52 podcasts is ridiculous. It's uh, really flown by. And I'm very thankful that something that I thought was just going to be a four to five week pre-opening major Domo Diaries has turned into this thing that is still evolving. And just know that we're going to continue to evolve. We're going to continue to make mistakes. We're going to try to find our voice and try new things out. And I will get better as a podcast host. I've had a lot of fun, guys. And uh, a lot of room for improvement. I totally understand that, but really can't tell you enough from the bottom of my heart how much I appreciate your guys' support. Thank you so much. See you in the new year.